I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshananthan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Brotherless Night. Sugi, as you and the listeners to this show probably are tired of hearing, I, I did spend some time writing about the war and conflict in uh, the Middle East. You may have mentioned it here and there. Yes. Occasionally. Yeah. Yes. Well, this is an important part of my life and many, many other people's lives, especially more important than anyone else, the, the Iraqis who were involved in the American invasion of Iraq, which it's the 20th anniversary, anniversary of that invasion, um, which occurred on March 19th, 2003. And I've been looking back at thinking about what happened then and trying to read about, read from, and uh, literature that depicts some of the peak moments of that conflict. Yeah, I feel like um, it can be a little challenging to untangle all of the facets of the Iraq War with so much coverage from Western sources over the last 20 years. But fortunately, Haith Abdul-Ahad has just released his book, A Stranger in Your Own City, in which he depicts his life as it pertains to living in Baghdad during that conflict. Raith Abdullahad is an Iraqi journalist who began working as a translator after the U.S. invasion. He has writ- since written for The Guardian and The Washington Post and published photographs in The New York Times, The Washington Post, L.A. Times, and other media outlets. He has received the Martha Gellhorn Prize for Journalism, the James Cameron Memorial Trust Award, and the British Press Awards Foreign Reporter of the Year. His new book, A Stranger in Your Own City, was published this month by Knopf. Raith, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. We're really excited to have you with us. You begin A Stranger in Your Own City with the description of a pool in a Baghdad hotel. And 
the American invasion of Iraq has just begun. And you tell the Western journalists at the hotel that you used to swim in this pool. And, and you write, and I'm quoting here for our listeners, they, they gave me kind, patronizing, and unbelieving smiles. How dare I introduce normality into their adventure sphere? We were destined to be the victims or the victimizers in their stories. It feels like this is one of the primal intentions of this book, to tell Iraqi stories that journalists like this ignored. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Um, well, I mean, you know, when journalists kind of uh, congregate in a city, especially a city in war, they all tend to take over one hotel and this hotel becomes the, the center of the journalistic activities. And in that, in that hotel, it kind of it's almost becomes like a military camp. You know, there is violence outside. Uh, people are trying to, tell, to work together, congregate together to tell war stories. And when you tell them that, you know, this swimming pool was where I spent my childhood. This is where I used to swim every day. It kind of like, it destroys the narrative that they have come to tell, which is, this is a broken city, this is a tortured city, and we're all either victims or victimizers. There is one thing I have in this book, which is every single character is Iraqi was in Iraq. So I, I mean, I know the Americans were a big part of this war. It's an American occupation of, of Iraq. Uh, but I, I intentionally did not include any Americans because I really wanted to tell the story from a pure Iraqi perspective. I definitely know that feeling. I was a reporter in Iraq and I remember seeing, I was in the green zone once in some bunks and some a TV crew came in. The TV people are always in my, since I'm a print cover person, more arrogant than the print people. And they, you know, they made everyone clear the room. They started setting up sets. They're doing all this stuff. I mean that, and I can imagine even worse from an Iraqi perspective, what it would be like to be dealing with the sort of great, powerful arrogance of, of media organizations. I mean, my first encounter with the media, I mean, I didn't know what media was or media at that time, you know, we grew up in Iraq. Iraq was a very controlled, censored society. We had no access to foreign media beyond what we could listen to on the, um, you know, shortwave radio. But I remember my first encounter is the moment when I saw American soldiers in my street. And just after the American soldiers came, those guys dressed in blue, with blue helmets and blue vests with the word TV. And, and they come with these big lenses and, and they're trying to take pictures of us, the kind of this small group of Iraqis sitting there. And you suddenly you realize, I mean, my sensation was like, we're like kind of like a pack of wild animals. And this photographer is approaching slowly, lest he scares us away, but he's also very scared of us. And, and that's, it's a very difficult situation because since then, it's been two decades where I myself have become a foreign reporter, a foreign journalist. So I always have that sensation in my head. Am I trudging into someone's backyard? Am I walking into someone's living room while I'm trying to tell the story? A lot of the beginning of the book is about these great um, misunderstandings, things that Iraqis knew that the West completely missed about very important moments in the beginning of that war. Um, and another good example of that would be the very famous moment when the statue of Saddam Hussein was torn down in Baghdad, which I, of course, watched on television like everybody else. Um, that was not long after the invasion. You I, were there, and your feelings about the moment were very different than the way it was portrayed in the Western media. You write a chapter about that. I wonder if you could just talk about that for our listeners. So after the Americans kind of 
came to my street, uh, they started, I live near the, what is called the National Theatre Square, and the Statue Square is just down the road. So I started following these American troops, they were Marines, and they all congregate in this uh, square where the statue was standing, but also where all the media were stationed at the time, the big media, the TV and the crew. And we were a small group of Iraqis and much larger group of foreign journalists. And as the Iraqis were trying to topple the, sta the statue, an hour later, half an hour later, they hadn't done much beyond um, smashing some marble tiles in the plinth. And that's the moment when the Americans decide to reverse one of these huge amphibious vehicles and use the crane in the back to pull down the statue. And of course, I cringed, like anyone who you know reads history, you realize this is the moment where that should have been the Iraqi moment. If you want to maintain that charade of the freedom, the people kind of toppling their own statue, so the Americans pulling the, the, the statue was the first cringing moment. The second moment is when the Marine who climbed uh, atop the ladder and he put this big noose around the statue's head pulls out an American flag and drapes it around Saddam's head or Saddam's statue's head. And then at that time I was like, oh no, don't do this. I mean, this is the moment that will be playing again and again on TV cameras. That's, this is an American, you know, American war. Since then, I came to realize that that Marine was more honest than any politician or any pundit ever, because he saw the war as a conflict between his army, the United States Army, and Iraq. He didn't see it as a, you know, a war of liberation or freedom or whatnot. And it was his right to pull out his own flag as a person who's been fighting all the way to Baghdad. And I think his act was, was more honest. But of course, that act sealed the fate of, the, of that adventure in the eyes of many. You also talk about how furious um, Iraqis were when they discovered that U.S. troops were far less organized than they expected. And I wonder if you could talk to us about that. I would say the majority of the Iraqis were very happy to see uh, the end of the Saddam regime. Not necessarily they were happy to see an occupation, invasion, war, but they wanted to get rid of Saddam in one way or another. So there was this very short period in which Iraqis believed that, oh my God, this is the United States of America. This is the biggest country in the world. I mean, look at their tanks and their equipment and their machines. And of course, they will turn Iraq into, I don't know, Dubai within, within a month. I mean, of course, they will rebuild the electricity within weeks. 20 years later, we still don't have electricity. So, so that, this kind of, the, the sense of disbelief when the Iraqis woke up a month or two months later to see the utter chaos in the streets, the looting, whatever infrastructure that was destroyed during the sanctions, 14 years of sanctions, was totally wiped out in the looting. When they saw that the Americans had no clue I mean, they couldn't stop the looting. They only protected the oil the Ministry of Oil, allowed the Iraqi Museum to be looted. That frustration, I mean, and of course, most of the Iraqis couldn't believe that the Americans had done no planning. Of course, what they thought is, oh, this is all a conspiracy to destroy Iraq, this great nation and whatnot. And that is the moment when the frustration turned into anger, turned into fury. I think it was interesting to me the, the the particular insight there that I realized was totally not present f 
on this on the American side of the war was that um, that Saddam had had a pretty good bureaucracy. <laughs> that, I mean, that he was efficient in certain ways, and that they had expected the Americans to be at least as good at him at at, at sort of running the trains on time and getting electricity to one, and yet they were not. Um, and we're supposed to be good at infrastructure. I mean, maybe we're not, actually. Now we our infrastructure in this country is terrible. We don't fix it. But, um, you know, that seemed to me like the key thing that the Americans just completely misunderstood. And part of that has to do with the construction of the Coalition Provisional Authority and the way that, that, that uh, uh, America, I mean, there were many, many mistakes that you outlined made at the beginning of the war. Um, but was there any way for that to ever go differently? I mean, look, an Arab bureaucracy uh, kind of precedes the state itself. I mean, the Ottomans established the first, the, the beginnings of the Iraq bureaucracy, the central state. And then, of course, Saddam did not create a, a the efficient Iraq bureaucracy. Saddam built on it. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, it's been a process that's been taking 100 years. Come the Americans, and they have these... So, so it's not only they didn't do any planning, but they also had the kind of the worst kind of ideology to implement in Iraq, which is a mixture of free market, That's right. Let's just, they had the anti-government idiots were running the war. That was the one, another problem. Uh, absolutely. So what was we, so we end up with these kind of 20-something-year-old kids who believe in the shock doctrine and whatnot, and they come to run the Ministry of Electricity, Ministry of Health, run provinces by guys who have never done any job in their lives. And, and, and of course, that turns into utter chaos. So in the beginning, let's say in the first year, I, I kind of was one of those people who believed that if only the Americans had done their homework, if only they had brought more soldiers, uh, more construction companies, maybe the outcome of the war would have been different. Come to think of it a year and a half later or two years later, I realized, you know, that whole occupation was illegal and there is no way that that illegal adventure could have turned a a different no amount of planning would have turned an illegal occupation into a happy prosperous uh, democratic country because and this is what i write in the book i mean you can bomb a nation put it under sanctions and humiliate it bomb it again and tell it you know what you go and become a democracy overnight so that venture was doomed from the beginning. Especially when the central rationale of the bombing is, is a lie. I mean, you can't, wars built on falsehoods always fall apart. So um, Whitney was telling me that he first went to Iraq in the summer of 2006, and a very complicated civil war was just beginning there, kicked off, as, as you point out in the book, by the bombing of the Al-Asghari shrine in Samarra, which was um, February 2006. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the origins and complexity of that conflict within a conflict. So I, I mean, of course, the Asker, the bombing of the Asker shrine by uh, Zarqawi's group Al Qaeda in Iraq was kind of considered as the start, the official start of the civil war. However, I think the civil war actually started almost two years earlier, because one of the disasters of the war. So the first disaster was an illegal war. The second disaster, there was no planning. And, and of course, uh, Bremer, this viceroy uh, who had extra uh, powers to dismantle the state as he wanted. You, you know, after kind of releasing the army, uh, sending the officers in, into whatever uh, 
and dismantling the bureaucracy. The third problem, which was also disastrous, is the ideology that came with the occupation was a sectarian ideology that had evolved in exile and developed by, you know, exiled politicians, religious parties, many had been using the, the sectarian narrative to convince the Americans to come invade Iraq to liberate, let's say, one section of the society. And, and the danger in that kind of ideology is if one section of the society are victims, then the other section of the society are the victimizers. And that creates a split within the society. Now, now, and like all occupation armies had used one part of a society against the other, the, the, you know, the British in India did that before, um, the British also did it in Africa, the French did it in Africa and the Middle East. So the Americans decided to side with, let's say, militias, most of them who had been trained in Iran, and used them as the backbone of the security forces. And that was the easiest recipe for a civil war. And the civil war began when people were hunted for their sect, for their tribe, for their family name, which pushed those people to congregate around their own sect, around their own tribe, around their own clan. And then that's when the split happens in the society. Look, I grew up in Iraq for 29 years. I, of course, there, there were Kurds and Sunnis and Shia. These are social uh, identifiers, these are class identifiers. But at the same time, you know, people married between sects. Uh, there was, you know, between ethnicities, between sects. We had friends from different kind of backgrounds. That is the beginning of the civil war. That is the spark of the civil war that took place. And of course, it was later told as this primordial uh, conflict between Sunnis and Shia. The Iraqis have been fighting each other for thousands of years, which of course was not true. Yes, maybe different clashes has happened before in the history a few hundred years ago, but that doesn't mean that the society is bound to go into this another cycle of violence. So the civil war could have been prevented. And the Civil War was not uh, an, an outcome sealed uh, by the occupation. And of course, the, the other, you know, the result of that Civil War is the city is divided. And I, someone who grew up in that city, end up being a stranger in my own city because I cannot travel between different streets and different neighborhoods anymore. I need someone to vouch for me. And that Civil War lasted for, I'd say, four or five years until 2008-9, when the Sunnis, when the Sunni insurgency realized that they could not defeat the Shia militias and the Americans at the same time, so they sided with the Americans. And that's the end of the first Civil War. Thank you so much for all of that really important context. Um, and of course, we were talking earlier about Saddam Hussein, about the statue. And in the book, you write the state was Saddam and Saddam was the state. And and of course, in, in the what you just said, you referenced the title of the book, which is um, beautiful and sad. And I feel like also just yeah important to thinking about the politics of the book. So how does Saddam Hussein fit into what you're what you were just saying about the civil war is the civil war? in any way a manifestation of Iraqis trying to define themselves after Saddam went away? I don't think Saddam fits into the narrative of the civil war anymore. Saddam's role in Iraqi history ended in 2003. I mean, he was trying to tell them, his American captors, if you release me, I will stop the insurgency. And I think by that time, it was too late because, you know, as an outcome of the chaos that reigned in the streets of Baghdad in 2003, all different kind of elements came to Iraq to fight their own wars against the Americans. So you had 
the jihadis suddenly flocking into Iraq. I mean, we didn't have jihadis in Iraq. Saddam was oppressing any uh, political, any Islamist political movement, be it Sunni or Shia. And, and of course, the jihadis, the Muslim Brotherhood, had no presence in Iraq. The chaos created by the Americans allowed these forces to come to Iraq. And of course, uh, militias came from Iran because the Iranians too thought, why, would, why should we wait for the Americans to come and start fighting us in Iran? Why don't we defeat the Americans while they're in Iraq? So all these different outside forces congregated in Iraq to fight and make sure that the Americans were defeated in Iraq. I just want to re-emphasize, like, I, I did have, I, as Sugi mentioned, I was outside, I was west of Baghdad in an area, I still have the map right here on the wall, but in the summer of 2006, and so the American soldiers that I was with were really, they referenced the bombing of the shrine, and, and they had been in that area, and they thought something weird was happening, and they, you know, they, they would come back from patrols where they're walking around through villages, and they say, we're finding bodies that we didn't kill, we don't know what's going on. We don't know what's happening. It was very, it was very unnerving for them to, to, to what was happening. It was just a period of complete uncertainty and instability. People just didn't understand, or at least they didn't, what was happening, and maybe some Iraqis didn't as well. I mean, I think that period is is when the kind of the violence moved from targeted violence. So let's say Shia militias would target specific Sunni, uh, you know members of the insurgency and whatnot, and the Sunnis would target specific members of the Shia community. I think what happened in that 2006, it became whole, you know, whole, you know, full-scale violence. So it did not matter if you uh, you were a Sunni insurgent or a Sunni businessman or a Sunni taxi driver or a Sunni shop owner. Violence became, as we say in Arabic, al-qatil al killing based on your ID card. And that is the scale of the violence. And uh, I feel sorry for the Americans who had found buddies that they didn't kill themselves. But that was the reality. I mean, the number of... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they were, put, they were killing plenty of people, but it, it, it alarmed exactly. them that someone so, else was so, doing it so, as well. So that's when the scale of, of violence uh, escalated. And that's when many more people died uh, in, in these kind of targeted killing and, and assassinations. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. Um, what about other leaders who emerged during the conflict? Who was the most successful, and, and why were none of them able to unify the country in the way that Saddam did? And are there any potential leaders on the horizon? I mean, a few leaders emerged because of the war, and some of them are still active today. But all of those leaders who emerged all had this... Um, confessional sectarian ideology. I mean, Saddam unified the state because he owned the state, because the state was Saddam, and Saddam was the state. The, the, the next generation that emerged, uh, let's say Prime Minister Nur al-Maliki, was the strongest and still very strong political figure. Those guys wanted to use the sectarian narrative to enshrine their position in power. He, uh, Muqtada Sadr, other people, there was, I mean, they want to take over the state, they want to dominate the state, but not for the service of the state as a state, but for the service of what they perceive as their section of the state, which is their sect and ethnic group. Um, the political system in Iraq, enshrined for the past two decades, is based on a system called Muhasasa, which is the allocation of state resources 
to different sects and parties. So each ministry becomes the fiefdom of a, of a certain political party. In that kind of politics, there will be no one um, overarching kind of ideology or political figure who will try to unite the state. I mean, one of the most dangerous things happening at the moment in Iraq is among the, the, the new generation of Iraqis, the young people who were children in 2003 and have grown up through the dynamics of civil war, there's this yearning for the strong man because democracy is associated with conflict, with corruption, with different uh, kleptocratic kind of elites uh, dominating the parliament in Iraq at the moment. So what do they think? They think, oh, the days when we had a strong dictator, or the days when he would, uh, the electricity was functioning, the water was functioning, which is of course very short-sighted because we had disasters at that time. And, and this is another victim of this war in, in Iraq, which is the concept of, of a democracy, of a plural system. We were supposed to be, uh, the American president at the time was constantly talking about America exporting democracy, bringing democracy to Iraq, but really what we did was sort of ruin the reputation of democracy in that country, um, as you point out many times in the book. In the second half of the book, um, you talk about how the American occupancy shaped and in many ways birthed the rise of ISIS or Daesh. Uh, was it a mistake for American forces to withdraw in 2010, or was the rise and success of ISIS an inevitable consequence of the U.S. invasion? So, so, so the whole first to talk, this whole idea of exporting democracy is is a pure imperial hubris. Yes. I mean, no doubt. I mean, I mean, how can you export a, a, a something through tanks and bombs? The emergence of ISIS happened. Uh, I mean, Al-Qaeda was there, the jihadis were there, but the expansion from Al-Qaeda, from a small terrorist organization, into a, uh, you know, I don't know, an organization that kind of controls lands and cities and refineries and oil and wheat silos, that happened because of, A, the sectarian politics that was created in Iraq, which created this rift between Sunnis and Shia, not only in Iraq, but could be expanded into Syria. The dynamics of the Arab Spring and the gradual and quick uh, slide of the Syrian uprising, the Syrian revolution into an armed struggle, into a civil war, all these different kind of uh, elements created the perfect conditions for ISIS to emerge. So yes, ISIS benefited from the American occupation of Iraq, but it also benefited from uh, you know, Bashar's policies towards his people, bombing the, pe the, the, the civilians, the anger that was created, the, the, f the factionalism of the Syrian armed forces equipped and armed by everyone from the Qataris, the Saudis, the Americans, the British, the French, you name them, the Iranians interference, the sectarians, so all these different elements work together to create the perfect nightmare in the region, which is ISIS. So there's a section of the book um, that I really admire called Ali's War, where you write very beautifully about one particular Iraqi soldier's fight against ISIS. And I wonder if just for our listeners, I'd love to give them a window into this, into this section. How did you meet Ali and could you outline his story for us? 
it, the Battle of Mosul was was a was a huge thing in Iraq because the, the process, the fight against ISIS that began basically towards the mid of two thousand fourteen, culminated in two thousand seventeen, in this. I mean, I don't know how to describe it in this really hard battle in the city of Mosul, and especially in the old part of the city, because these are kind of very dense alleyways. So Ali was just an uh, an officer who I, I'm, you know, I've met him a few times and accompanied him in, in one of these uh, battles throughout the streets of the city. And, and you see, I mean, people like Ali and other officers were not only fighting this house-to-house, door-to-door, trying to you know, kill, basically, insurgents, but they also had become arbiters of peace and justice. I mean, many of those officers, the young officers, would make life-and-death decisions when, when they bring to them a captured prisoner. What do we do with a captured prisoner? And, and do we... Do we send him to Baghdad because we don't trust the, the, the judicial system in Baghdad because he could pay a bribe and get out of it? Or do we execute justice uh, in, the, in the grounds of the old city of Mosul? And this is what happened. I mean, after the, when the battle finished, I say hundreds of people were, were executed in the old city of Mosul based on the suspicion that they were ISIS. So all of that violence all of that violence. Again, many of those people, like Adi, like other soldiers, like other officers, and like their opponents, they were all children in 2003, young men, and they grew up in this legacy of violence. Not only the legacy of violence brought by the Americans, of course, but even Saddam's legacy of violence. I witnessed these scenes of torture, which, which was horrendous, and I would ask the people doing the torture. Why are you torturing the prison? Don't you want to have some, extract some information? It's like it's torture for the purpose of torture. And they said, we don't care about information. The torture played a, a role in kind of a vengeance against this opponent, ISIS. And that is a legacy of the Iraqi state of the last 30, 40 years coupled with the legacy of American torture of prisoners, coupled with the, the sectarian policies of the Iraqi security forces. All of that culminated in this one place called the Old State Museum. I think your book is obviously very important and especially, you know, important for anyone to read, but speaking from as an American, important for Americans to read, to hear this, this side, this part of the story that many Americans don't. No, and, and of course, what's happening in Iraq has totally fallen off the radar screen and off the news in America now. And ever since, actually, American troops left, Americans stopped paying attention to what was happening in Iraq, to be honest. Um, and I think very few Americans are aware of how much the U.S. government and military was involved in Iraq after the quote-unquote withdrawal in 2010. Could you talk about that? You write about that in the book. Um, what was the U.S. doing during that time, and was it effective? So after 2010, and I think kind of earlier than that, by 2008-9, the Americans, although they had the largest number of soldiers on the ground, they became like the second player in Iraq. Iran had become the main player in Iraqi politics. And that is, again, uh, a sign of the brilliance of American planning is you, you go to Iraq, the arch enemy of Iran, and you turn Iraq into this biggest ally of Iran at the moment. So the Americans' role kind of really, um, kind of like, I would say subsided by, by 2009 when, when Iranians started playing a major role in, in Iraqi politics. 
not until 2017 when the Americans came back, or 16, when the Americans came back to play a role in Iraq, and that's in supporting Iraqi army and security forces in the fight against ISIS. So despite the violence and oppression enacted by groups like ISIS, you're still describing their members with compassion. I'm thinking specifically, there's a chapter in the book uh, called The Jihadi Begin Building a State. And in that chapter, you describe a 12-year-old fighter staring at you through a car window. Um, And is your effort to kind of capture the individuality of people like this a push against the stereotypical media portrayals of what Western media calls Islamic extremists? I mean, I think compassion is is a, is a big word. It was probably fear uh, more than compassion. But I mean, how do we understand the, the how do we understand ISIS if we turn them into you know cartoons into two dimensional characters? Oh, they are people, and they're people co- committing this violence. And and for me, I think the violence committed by anyone is. It, it needs to be understood. We need to understand why a 12-year-old had joined ISIS. Or later, when I, uh, you know, there is another guy from ISIS who was being tortured. He confessed himself that he was an ISIS fighter. So by telling his story, how did he end up joining that, the craziest of crazy organization, the, 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 the ultimate evil? How could someone do that? And you know, I... Probably my inspiration in doing that is the work of a German novelist, Hans Fallader. Because in Hans Fallader's work, he portrays life in Nazi Berlin in the 40s and how normal people, average people, can become perpetrators of extreme violence and how most of the people, when faced with the choice of lowering your head, walking, you know, just moving away from confronting the evilness or just kind of saving yourself and moving away. People would just save themselves and move away. And that, when I started hearing the stories and telling the stories of life under ISIS, I could just only think of life in Berlin in the 30s and 40s. Thank you so much for joining us. I just wondered before you go, if you could just... What is happening in Iraq in Iraq now, uh, governmentally, and what do you think the future's going to look like? Do you, do you care to speculate? I mean, look, 20 years on, Iraq, at the moment, you know, people are going to restaurants, people going out, there are malls, there are shopping centers, but but Iraq is sitting on a, on a I don't know, a volcano, on a, a huge, uh, you know, a potential explosion because while Iraq is one of the richest countries in the world with a hundred hundred twenty billion dollars yearly budget coming from oil money, there is a large section of the society, be it in Baghdad, be it in the southern city, living under poverty line, and that social injustice is the next explosion, which we've seen parts of it in these demonstrations that took place in the streets of Baghdad in 2019-2020. While Iraq is ruled now by a kleptocratic elite, a combination of militia warlords, corrupt politicians, um, corrupt business people, the majority of the people are basically trying to survive, and that is the next crisis facing Iraq. Combined, of course, with the climate disaster that's unfolding in the whole region, rivers are drying. So if no one, you know, 
take some drastic measures to address these issues, I think we're going to see another round of complaints. Thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. And we want to encourage our listeners to go and pick up A Stranger in Your Own City, which is out now. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ryan Reed. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. And please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fictionpodcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own fiction slash non slash fiction podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel, and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic area. Happy reading.